welcome to episode 203 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, oh, brother. How are you? I'm great. You know, I, before we get started, I want to take a second okay. and make a very special congratulations announcement. So I saw on Facebook that Luke from the Steady Anchor podcast got engaged this weekend. So I did not know that. Congratulations, Luke. And I think his fiance's name is Jess, if I'm remembering what I was reading correctly. Congratulations. Marriage is awesome. You guys are going to crush it. Uh, good work. He liked it, so he put a ring on it. So <laughs> that that's some sage wisdom from the uh, philosopher Beyonce. Beyonce. Yeah, that was well done. Yep. You said that so matter-of-fact that that's not what I anticipated was coming out of your mouth just then. That that I was going to quote Beyonce? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if you like it, you better put a ring on it. It's Yeah, just... no, that, that's great. I mean, again, in my defense, I, you don't necessarily have a track record of quoting Beyonce. So this is probably it was the first a little bit time unexpected. ever, I think. Yeah, it was a little bit uh, unanticipated, but that is a really good word right there. I totally affirm that. And can we use this as a plug for like the mega feed in yeah. the society again? Yeah, can it's I, good stuff. Can I turn that over to you? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the mega feed <laughs> is there. It's functional. It wasn't for a little while, but I figured out what was wrong and I fixed it. Um, yeah. So Society of Reform Podcasters, I think we're up to like eight or nine shows right now, um, runs the range of kind of straight biblical studies stuff. Uh, Kevin on Christ in Context is doing a lot of kind right. of exegetical episodes. Uh, Luke himself has done a couple uh, like Bible series. He just got done with a series through the Apostles Creed, which was excellent. Uh, and then there's kind of your traditional two guys talking about theology format like us or Reform Pilgrims as three guys. And we've introduced some shows with some pastors on it. Uh, I've got a couple other shows that I'm eyeing out that I'm getting ready to reach out to, but you can subscribe either to individual shows or you can subscribe to the mega feed and you'll get all of the content. And when you subscribe to the mega feed and we add a new show, you get all of the old backlogged episodes from that show. So you don't even have to go like look them up and try to listen to their backlog. It just gets delivered straight to your phone. Right on. It's a wonderful place to find all kinds of great content that's of a different kind of variety. So there's a lot of similarities, but it's also, I'd like to think because we've worked hard to bring into this family, so to speak, those who are of like-mindedness, that you're going to get some natural vetting that's happened here. So it's really kind of a safe place to hear a lot of great theological content yeah. that's of and in the Reformed stream of theological thought. Yep. Yeah, some good stuff. Um, I've been listening to uh, Assurance of Pardon. They just started a new season, uh, which is is awesome. They were doing kind of a Christianese phrases and kind of digging into those and tearing them apart. And now they're doing a hermeneutic series, which I'm really looking forward to. So check it out. Lots of good stuff. Yeah, it's fantastic. And before we get then to affirmation denials, can I piggyback on something that's just a way of, I know, commending or commendation for some of our listeners. And that is we have a lot of listeners that tune into us either by their favorite podcast app or often and sometimes either online or through YouTube. And we just recorded an episode that was based on this wonderful sermon about the preference of public worship over that, which is private in the traditional puritanical sense. 
And I want to commend Brother Jimmy, who left us a really wonderful review of the episode via YouTube, in which he really gave, kind of poured out his heart a little bit. I would encourage people to kind of go out and find this episode on YouTube so they can see his comment in full. But basically what he was expressing is that in his own world, that he and his wife have a 13-year-old boy who's severely handicapped. And this, for various reasons, prevents them from being part altogether of the Lord's Day worship. And so he just was saying that he appreciated the conversation that we had and that there is a way in which God accommodates those in extreme circumstances like he and his wife experience yeah. in their own family. But even he reiterated in a really wonderful and beautiful way that there's no replacement for corporate worship. And he said that in his own life, that is a whole, it's a felt absence. Yeah. And so I really appreciate his willingness to be open and honest in his commentary and to provide, again, some feedback for what we're talking about here. This is, like we said time and time again, one of the reasons we have these conversations together and then put them into the interwebs is so other people may participate in them and so have a voice and to be part of this dialogue about all things that are faith in life. And so yeah. I just wanted to commend his ability and his willingness to write that comment and to express some of what's going on in his own world. That was very kind. And I have to think that there are many that are experiencing similar situations as he is. Yeah. And so I hope this would be an encouragement and a source of strength to others who are in similar situations. Yeah. One of the things that I think his comment really exemplifies that I think we all need to get a little bit better at understanding is that the Lord is gracious. Uh, and so there are situations like uh, Jimmy was describing where, um, you know, your situation doesn't fit the norm. And so God is gracious to accommodate us when he puts us into these situations um, to an extent. Um, but he's unchanging. And so his law yes. doesn't change to fit our circumstances, but sometimes our circumstances sort of fall slightly outside of, of those, those boundary markers in terms of what the law is describing and what, what the law is con- conscribing. And what I see all too often is people take their situations and they view them as a, a justification for why the law of God has to be different than it is, rather than, as Jimmy is demonstrative, saying the law of God is what it is, and he's designed things for a certain a certain reason, but our situation is not within the constraints of what God is describing in his law, and so we he makes an accommodation for us without somehow, like, you know, trying to like circumvent the law itself. I might right. not be explaining myself well, but rather, rather than take his circumstance and believe his circumstance determines what God's law is prescriptively. He recognizes that the law is what it is and God's intentions are what they are, even though his circumstances fit that a little differently. So I, I, I you know, when I read that, I, I just was kind of floored by his honesty and his humility and to just bring that forward. And I think he demonstrates a really important point is that if you're in a situation where you're not able to attend church frequently or, or regularly with your whole family, um, and you don't feel a loss of some sort like he's describing, then that's probably an area for you really to think about kind of like, you know, is this an area where God God's going to want to sanctify me more because I'm not right. I'm not quite there yet. I think especially in this age of covid where it's regular for us to miss church occasionally or or consistently because of government restrictions or concerns about our health or whatever it might be. Um, if you're not feeling that loss of gathered worship, then that's something to really pray about and think about. Yeah, I totally agree with that. One thing I would kind of bring, I would say, as we, as I've been thinking about what he wrote, was this idea that I'm growing to understand that the Christian life is increasingly one that's unsettled in lots of ways. Yeah. It's at unease, and it's yep. an internal unease and external unease. 
And so my heart breaks for the situation which he finds himself in. And yet I think his response is so incredibly mature because it's this dichotomy of understanding that God intends for his worship to be in what, like in this way, in the way that he's set forth. And yet the world in which he lives in some ways precludes that very thing. And so he's, I don't think he's like saying, like you're saying, it's wonderful to have somebody say like, I'm not going to make excuses for the way in which, um, I have to honor the Lord's day. And at the same time, he says, I just feel at, at unease with the way things are. Yeah. And this tension is something that even in God's provision for my life and his superintending will for my family, he's allowed this to happen. And so here's a man who's a wrestling with all that it means to be a worshiper of God. And yet to know that God himself has allowed this to take place. Yeah. And so I can't imagine what it is to be in that place, but for somebody to wrestle through that, to be at unease and yet to be at peace like this back and forth almost, like there is a seesaw teetering back and forth of wrestling with these issues, all the while knowing that what God calls him to is the obedience in the place that he's, he's put him. Yeah. And so I just found this response. It's, it's very short in some ways, and yet it spoke volumes to me. So I'm just thankful that we have listeners like this who are willing to kind of, again, contribute to the conversation in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we do some affirmations and denials? And I'm going to give you... We? dealer's choice today. Do you want to start us off with some affirmations or some denials? I'm going to go negative. How do you feel oh, about man. that? Like, Let's but I'm going it. to kick, I'm going to kick it back to you. Let's oh. do the denials first to switch right. it up a bit and hit me with what you're against. So I, I don't want to take this as a particular opportunity to bash on a particular figure in Southern California, but okay. his post, John <laughs> MacArthur's who I'm talking about for anybody who can't see through my veil of sarcasm. Very, there. very subtle. Um, His post, and it actually wasn't his post, it was something that he said from the pulpit, uh, I believe it was last Sunday, Um, so not the 6th, but but the the week before that, the last Sunday in August. Um, There's this figure floating around out there that the CDC has released that uh, has been interpreted by many uh, incorrectly to say that of all of the people who have have COVID-19 listed on their death certificate... Only 6% of them actually died of COVID-19. And uh, there's a whole host of issues surrounding that. My main question, and it was funny, I messaged this to somebody on Facebook privately, and, and their first response, this just tells you like exactly how reformed this guy is, is why was he even talking about that in, in the pulpit? Like, that's not in the right. Bible. Like, what right. what is that even, what function does that even serve in in the sermon? But this isn't a denial of John MacArthur. But his this was the precipitating event. He then said there's no pandemic and there's all sorts of other issues. But this statistic has been passed around to minimize the impact of COVID-19 as a pandemic. And the, the really terrifying part about this is that this is actually it actually means precisely the opposite of what people are, are meaning it to mean. So so this is how it goes down. When a person dies, uh, the doctor, as best as they can, lists the causes, the precipitating causes of death. And the f- generally speaking, the first line on and there's all sorts of helpful YouTube videos you can find that explain this that have gone into the details by doctors. Um, generally speaking, the first line on the causes of death, there's a couple lines you could put comorbidities. The first line is considered the primary cause of death. And then the second and thirds are usually precipitating events or precipitating factors. So the people who have COVID-19 and then something like respiratory distress or cardiac failure or hypertension, diabetes, like the other kinds of comorbidities, 
those death certificates are not saying this person didn't die of COVID, but they did die of hypertension. What they're saying is they died of COVID, but but the reason COVID was so intense that it took their life in this particular case is that it was in the setting of these other comorbidities. Right. The 6% of people who only have COVID listed, this is this is why I, I'm so frustrated about this, because rather than this being not a big deal, which is what they're saying, this is actually really terrifying. Because it means 6% of all the people who died who died from COVID had no other underlying causes. So literally right. the only thing that the doctor could identify that contributed to the demise of this person was the fact that they had this virus, which is actually really scary. Now, 6% of 100,000 people is 6 thousand people in the grand scheme of things and in the united states that's not a lot of people um but that it's it's being used to say like well see it's all a fraud these like not many people actually die from covid but to put it into perspective this would be like if someone got in a car accident and and a, a major artery was severed and so they they bled out and their heart stopped so a situation like that might say on the uh, on the death certificate might say that the primary cause of death was cardiac arrest. And then you might have the next line might say uh, blood loss or uh, exsanguination or something like that. And then the last line might say uh, trauma due to motor vehicle accident or trauma due to MVA or something like that. This would be like saying that that person did not die because they bled out or they did not die because they were in a car accident. Really, they just died because their heart stopped. That's right. the equivalent to what people are trying to make this uh, this CDC data say. And here, here's the most just use your logic circuits people kind of a moment. The CDC is the one that's saying all of these people died from COVID. This is a, a website, a statistic where the CDC themselves are saying the cause of death, the reason all these people died is because they got COVID. The, the the fact that people are using this statistic to say, see, the CDC says that they didn't, you, they didn't die from COVID. It, it's just like, it's the confirmation bias thing all over again. But I, I think it's actually a little bit more nefarious than confirmation bias because confirmation bias happens when you have a preconceived idea and and you interpret evidence in order to uh, confirm that idea. You see you right. find the evidence or you understand the evidence or you see the evidence that confirms your pre-existing bias. But I think the reason I say this is a little more nefarious is because people are actively watching and looking for Places where the CDC or the World Health, World Health Organization or Dr. Fauci or whoever, where they actively mess up and reveal that it's not actually so bad, uh, you know, even though they, they're saying it is. So I, I'm just denying this statistic. I'm denying the Christians who passed it around. Uh, sneak peek. We're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. I'm denying the fact that this is a violation of the ninth commandment to pass around statistics that are not correct or to use statistics right. incorrectly. It's not a neutral event. If you do it on accident, it's still a sin to do. So, so use your heads. If you're not an expert, this just to get back to MacArthur and, and to maybe wrap this up, he started that little segment of his uh, sermon or whatever he wants to call that part of the service. He started it by saying, I don't want to present myself as an expert and then immediately followed it by saying, but here's my here's here's what the statistic means, contrary to what the experts are telling you. So he presented himself as an expert, even though he was saying he didn't. He misunderstood and misapplied the 
uh, the statistic because he didn't understand what it was. And worst of all, he did it from the pulpit on Sunday morning in an authoritative fashion. So be really careful what you're doing with statistics, people, because statistics in themselves are difficult to understand. Most of us don't understand math. I'm not great at math. The only reason that I know this is because I had an in-depth conversation with the doctor at my at the hospital who explained this to me. Um, you just be careful because when you pass along something false, you're passing along something false and that's a violation yes. of God's law. Right. Th- this is, first of all, let me say of both of us, I would have expected I would be coming at hard at the denial that was like, don't misuse statistics. I know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm impressed. I'm very impressed right now. Uh, but the second thing is you're right. It's worth saying because I think many people don't realize that as a branch of mathematics, it is very particular and nuanced. And so it's easy to get caught up in thinking that you understand what's being said. Right. When it, there is like a, a particular skill set that's involved in interpreting, explaining, and using statistics, whether it's inferential or descriptive. Yeah. And I think because right now we're inundated with numbers that people feel like, well, if I read an article, I can just quote it back. And that's me understanding. But it's both understanding and interpreting. And right. here you have MacArthur trying to do both. Right. And you can't just say, well, I'm not an expert, but let me quote this number. Right. And so this just shows how like really... I would say detailed you need to be. I think what you're bringing up is exactly right because even if you say, well, like this is, let me just requote or regurgitate something that was told to me. This 6% number, once you understand what's behind it in the way that you just explained it about how basically what we're saying there is in that 6% of cases, there was nothing else. There were no other co-inferences or co-morbidities that would have contributed to the death. That should actually give us pause to say how virulent and dangerous the disease is exactly not that we're more safe from it. It actually shows that in these cases you have perfectly healthy people with no other known causes of complications succumbing to something that we barely understand that by itself. If we actually weight that in the sense of how appropriate it is for us to understand again, how like impacting the disease is should give us pause. Not should give us liberty to say it's not that big a deal. And I think that's, that's part of the problem. I think that you're addressing. Yep, absolutely. So we're going to talk more about this issue about honesty and integrity on the internet in a, an episode coming up uh, in the future here. But this this is just one of those things that I see all over the place. And it, it's I don't want to give away too much because I've already got my head spinning on what we're going to talk about. This will be the most prepared for episode we've ever had because I'm already thinking about it. But <laughs> people pass along bad information on the internet all the time. Like, for sure. like it's 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 just easy. You just click share and, and then there it is. And um, we don't think about the moral reality of that, the moral impact that has. And it really is a big deal. Like it, it's it it's a sin that would put someone in hell to put it to put it strongly and bluntly. Sure. Any sin is a sin that will put someone in hell if they're apart from Christ. And quote unquote, innocently sharing a mistaken, a mistaken figure or misunderstanding a, a statistic and passing that along. That's also a sin and, and any sin will put someone in hell. So it's not a neutral act. It's not a neutral thing to do. It's not a neutral act, but in this case, I think what you're making, the point you're making is warranted. And that is that if you're trying to promulgate an agenda by what you're quoting on something that you really don't understand, you have to be especially careful because what you're actually doing is is there is a nefarious intent, especially right. if you're wrong. And for the most part, none of us are right when it comes to really understanding these statistics. It's probably just better left unshared, unsaid, yeah. unused as some kind of argument to, pr- to promote your right. purpose. So yeah. I, I think at the very least, like what you're saying is we just need to all be super cautious and careful and just like 
portmanteaued those two words. There you go. Super careful and cautious about our tendency to use information like that to support what we think is correct or our opinion or view, especially when it comes to this world of COVID that we live in right now. Yeah. Well, what about you? What are you denying this week? I'm going to jump on and do a spiritual denial as well. And I already kind of give you a heads up to this one, but what I'm denying against is I've seen this particular, it's not a GIF, I guess, right? Just an image online a couple times and it's being used actually, and I'll keep everybody nameless so as to protect the non-innocent in my opinion, (laughs) but I've seen a pastor that I know personally actually share this a couple of times. It's an image that has two sides and it's meant to be, a description or an illustration to help us understand who God is in his attributes. And on one side, it says, not this. And then in a circle, it says, God is sovereign, holy, wrathful, merciful, loving, righteous, etc." And then the right-hand side, it says, but this, as is, this is the right way to view God. And in a circle, it says, God is holy love. And then with an arrow pointing down below, it has all these other characteristics holiness, mercy, sovereignty, justice, etc., wrath. So what this is trying to emphasize is that, well, when we describe God and we encircle him or include all these, these characteristics like sovereign, holy, merciful, we're getting it wrong because what we need to understand is that really God is all love and then everything else is an expression of that love. And so my critique of this is, it's not wrong, but it's not even right. Certainly yeah. like the way this thing is being used, I guess my, what I'm denying against is that the simplicity of God as a theological concept is in a bear market. I don't know why, but people underemphasize the simplicity of God as if I think even when we use those terms, they think that somehow that is actually denigrating his character. That when we say simplistic, we're saying that he is a simple being. That's not what we're saying at all with, with respect to the fact that he is... And in man, see, this is how complicated it gets in the sense that like God, God is in a simple way. His, his love, his love is his mercy, is his sovereignty, is his justice, is his wrath. Right. What, what I get bothered by in this expression is that this particular pastor is trying to say that view of God as simplistic is inappropriate because what we need to focus on is he's really just love right. and everything else in his expression of that love. And where that usually comes from is pastors talking about the fact that God is love, but the Bible is also, also clear that God is jealous. So like we can't just pick and choose or, or kind of latch on to love and say everything else is just expression of that. And so therefore, if you think God is wrathful, he's really not because he's right. primarily love. And so what I see in this is the EFS controversy warmed over and just recapitulated. Because what they're creating is some kind of hierarchy, some kind of sense of there is some way in which we need to rank or stack rank God's attributes. And really everything comes after love. And that's just something that I'm denying against. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the doctrine of divine simplicity in part is there to prevent us from creating this sort of like schizophrenic God who is at odds with himself. Like that's, that's the point of the doctrine. The reason we affirm that God is simple in his being and that his, in, in, in some sense, maybe, you know, d- different, different Orthodox thinkers will disagree exactly how this works out. But in right, some exactly. sense, his love and his justice are the same thing. Right. Um, you know, the most kind of that will separate them is we might say like, well, his justice is a loving justice and his love is a just love. We might, we might use that kind of like 
way of getting at it because we we don't have a way to actually describe a simple being because even our words are composite. Exactly. But, but the doctrine is there to get at that idea that whatever God is, he is in himself. There's, there's no principle within God that is different than God is. All that is in God is in fact God. And the, the very uh, point of this little uh, meme that, that your pastor friend passed along is to deny that. And that, right. that's what I think is so amazing is like they don't understand the terrifying implications of this idea that that God is love, but he's not justice. Right. He, he's not mercy. He's not wrath. He, th- those things that God somehow those express God, like they, they kind of like communicate God, but they're not. That's not really God. Well, then what we see in the scripture is not really God. We don't actually see who God is. Instead, we see just this presentation of God and we can never truly know him. We can never truly get right. to him. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's funny because I don't I don't understand linguistically where they get this. Right. You know, everybody wants to latch into onto that uh, passage in First John that God is love and use right. it for this. But there's all sorts of places where it says God is angry. God, yes, God is exactly. holy. God is. And, and so there, there's no good reason to say like, well, this passage, this isn't this is a univocal direct statement. But these ones, these are just expressions. There's there's no right. like good linguistic reason to do that or theological reason. So, yeah, you're you're dead on. This is this is really important. And especially in our in our theological climate where theology proper has been so misunderstood and has been chopped up and criticized and you know people take a skeptical approach to the to the classical doctrine of god this kind of thing is at best very unhelpful it's funny cuz i kind of joked with you i said well like it's funny cuz they're they're right in a sense but they don't even know it like right. there is this classic distinction between the the essence of god and the energies of god where where we talk about that god is who he is in himself but all we ever actually see is how god expresses himself right, in creation exactly. but right. that that is again a way to affirm that god is not divided in himself it's it affirms <laughs> divine simplicity for us to yes. say that because it gives us a mechanism to say like well these these ways that god reveals himself that seem to be composite or seem to be fashioned after creaturely understanding they aren't actually saying god is a creature it doesn't actually mean that god repented or changed his mind right on. it's a way to express truth about god in a way that not is not technically speaking analytically true but is analogically true so i, I think you're right on it i've seen similar kinds of memes and and i agree with you there at best i just kind of roll my eyes at them and i'm like this person just doesn't they don't get it they don't understand and they've never been taught right. why this is bad and i almost see this maybe i'm overreacting to this i think i that this could be like a, this is gateway subordination. Oh yeah, like for sure. Anytime you bring in subordination into like the, the essential characteristics and qualities of God, how is this not like just a skip and a jump away from EFS and everything else? Right. Now, again, some people would say like, we're talking about two very different issues. I get that. But if we're willing to make this distinction, if we're willing to subordinate anything, then we're yeah. willing to subordinate anything. So yeah. I think that if you acknowledge it and accept it in one place, it's easier to acknowledge and accept it in another place. So to me, this is like an argument, this meme or makes an argument for subordination from the lesser to the greater. Right. So it's just troublesome to me. And I, I'm astounded that a lot of, maybe that's unfair. Some pastors I've seen use this type of thing to try to express that really we've misunderstood who God is fundamentally. Right. And because God has labeled himself as love, because like you said, John says it in his gospel. And yet we find all over the scriptures that God 
brings very specific adjectives in reference to himself. Yeah. And those aren't always, as we might see as human beings, like quote unquote positive in the sense that like it's, he's, God is easygoing or he's, he's always going to just like let go of you know, right. sin and punishment that no, no, he's very serious about these things. So, but th- isn't this like what we, what we jettison in this type of view is the kind of appropriate sense, like you said, of justice and in punishment that right. that's always done in love is this is like, this is the God we want. This is the God we need. So why do we work so hard to get rid of that God? I have no yeah. idea. Well, and, and in reality, first of all, just because to show that we're equal opportunity critics, you could also write the word holy, H-O-L-Y, in the, the picture on the right and put R.C. Sproul's name underneath it. You know, he, he, he also said, like, holiness is the chief attribute of God and everything yes, else flows right. out of it. Right. So so this isn't just kind of like evangelical, fluffy, you know, people that do this. There's a propensity in all people, all humans, to try to fashion God in our own image even just so we can try to understand him. And yes. this idea that there's a central attribute and all the other attributes are expressions of or somehow flow from, that in itself is is an exercise in trying to, to fashion God in our image because it's making God like a creature. And, and this is the other direction it goes. Is now all of those things, you know, God is love. That's the attribute. All of those other things that are expressions of love, those are now external to God. And now God is... Ne- so So... What determines whether or not God's act is just is no longer that it it just is just because God is just just. Now it's just according to some external standard that God must conform to in order to properly express his love. And, and you know, I, I need to tease this out a little bit more, but I've got this theory that all heresies are actually corruptions of theology proper that the the initial root error is actually grounded in in theology proper itself um this is exactly that like this ends up being marcionism Mm -hmm. right jesus jesus just doesn't express the same things that the father does he his attribute is the same he's still love but he doesn't express that wrath stuff the way that the father does right the holy spirit doesn't express uh this attribute or that attribute it's really only jesus that does that like it 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 allows us to subdivide up the Trinity and have different understandings of who the father is and the son is in relation to how they really are and express themselves. So yeah, I am with you. This is a really good, a really good denial. <laughs> we just got so fired up on this denial, but I think for good reason, I hope it's this kind of stuff is super harmful because again, th- this pastor was doing this of course with the best intentions to try to, I think, explain to people or particularly his people, yeah. something about the character of God, maybe in a, in a particularly difficult time. And again, the irony is that we don't need that God because that God doesn't exist. That's right. not the God of the scriptures. Right. So what we need is the, is the God that is simple with respect to like all of his attributes being like coalescing together. They're contrarieties maybe, but contrarieties, right. not contradictions. And so that's an important distinction. And it's one of those times where I read that stuff online. And I'm like, I know you're trying to be helpful. And yet right. I can't understand why we can't come. Like we're not on the same page. How can you also not see like yeah. who is off here? One of us is off, right? We have to say. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. So, see, I have this vision of uh, like infiltrating Facebook and uh, retweaking their algorithm. So, when someone shares something like this, it automatically recommends an appropriate book to correct their errant theology. <laughs> I love that. So, it'd be like, that. you may be interested in All That Is in God by James Dolezal. <laughs> we saw that you shared this theological nonsense. You might also want to consider this book by Michael Horton. 
That's so good and so diplomatic. It'd be I like, love that. You appear to be a stark raving legalist. Here is a book about justification. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think you and I have talked about this. Like if we had unlimited time and could just podcast professionally, how amazing and also just downright fun it would be to respond to this kind of nonsense, like in real time online, like yeah. this kind of stuff just makes its rounds. So just kind of swoop in and be like, just be those guys that are like, actually. Yeah. And then I, give like the proper theology. If I had unlimited resources and didn't have to worry about working, I would just have a constant live stream going. Where I just I just scrolled through Facebook and all it was was me responding to this stuff. I, and, and since I don't need money, I wouldn't matter if anybody was watching. I would just have fun doing it. Yeah, that's that's very true. And but here's the thing is like, again, I, I hope that the family of God can have good discussion about this. And this is yeah. no comment on the pastor who posted this thing, because I think he would have decent discussion on this. But I hope that when this kind of stuff happens, that others can push back. And there are some, I think, who would see that and say, this makes perfect sense to me. Like, yes, God is love. That's what John says. And I think oftentimes, in fairness, sometimes people of varying levels of maturity in their Christian walk and faith can read that and think this makes perfect sense. And it takes one to say, actually, that's not really the way that God describes it. I understand that might seem that way, and this seems comfortable and maybe even amicable to like our own perception of God. But actually, this is the way the scripture defines it. And then yeah. I would say for most people, for most people, like maybe 90%, to be fair, they might see something like that and say, wow, I've never thought of it like that before. And then they'd go back into the scriptures and test that and say, you know what? This is a much better understanding of who God yeah. is. And this is the God that I can get down with because it's the God of the scriptures. So, you know, enough of that, I guess. So let's, yeah. let's go. Let's get happy. Let's get happy. What are you affirming? Well, speaking of happy, you could not have picked a better segue and you didn't even know it. So <laughs> I have to explain this because this is going to make me sound like an alcoholic and I'm not. I'm affirming juice box wine. So I am cooking. Actually, as we speak, I am cooking a crock pot meal that is going to be a delicious beef stroganoff by the time it's Ooh. done. But one of the things that it calls for is a third cup of red or white wine. And I prefer kind of that earthy red wine taste. So I went to the grocery store and I'm like, well, I don't want to buy a whole bottle of wine because I'm not a big wine drinker. I don't want to just sit at home and drink wine. If I'm going to have an alcoholic drink, I'd rather drink a beer or something like like a scotch or a whiskey or something like that. I don't I just don't love wine that much. So I'm looking around thinking like maybe they have small bottles of wine. And I find literally it's just a little juice box, but it's wine. And and on the side of it, it actually says juice box wine. Like it's it has the word juice box on it. So I'm affirming this because, you know, they say on the side of it, like, yeah, like this is good for cooking because it's a small, you know, easy to store amount. You don't have to. It doesn't take up a lot of space in your fridge. But then it also says that you could just drink it right out of the box (laughs) like a juice box. So that's what I'm affirming. That's so great. So at the risk of like triggering maybe a ton of people, can I parlay that into something that's like <laughs> I, I had. So I debated about denials this week and uh, oh man, I don't want to be uncharitable, unfair, but because you brought up the, the juice box. So in, in my own uh, Lord's Day experience this morning, we were celebrating the Lord's Supper and because for good reason, for safety reasons, part of our congregation, there's some that are still, uh, you know, uh, celebrating and worshiping on the Lord's day at home through like a live stream. Right. And so because we were doing the, 
the Lord's Supper, first of all, like many congregations these days, we're using what I affectionately call the communion lunchables, yes. which, you know, are like the little prepackaged, which can we, can we just sit, can we just be honest right now on this podcast, timestamp this, I'm saying it, man, the bread on those things is just downright awful. Yeah, I don't even know if you can call it bread, man. I, <laughs> it's I, what's, I'm it's not. not. I'm not a hundred percent sure that it's not like a packing peanut squished into a circle. Yes. It's pretty we're bad. Apparently, we're apparently having the same, same one, the same lunchable. So yes. then let me say this. When I got to, um, let's say like the vine, however we want to call that, the, the real, I kind of, I kind of cracked up during our communion, uh, you know, like presentation this morning because the pastor who's administering said, you know, if you're, I, I think this is kind of more of a slip of the time, but he said like, if you're at home, feel free to go like grab, your own elements. And so I turned to my wife and was like, man, if we were worshiping at home, we could have probably actually had wine this morning <laughs> instead of, instead of this. And then we actually partook of the cup and it was like so sweet and so weird. It was yeah. almost like a grape, like a fruity grape drink and not yeah. even like, it, it's, it's like it's they so melted strange. grape popsicles. Yes. Yes. That's a really good way of saying it. So yeah. I'm sure others can identify. So anyway, I was just thinking of that, like what I needed in that moment was, Juice the juice box, box. Wine. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I need juice. Is that the brand by any chance, or is that just like how it was described? I, I that's how it was described. I think it's called Mini Bada, like miniature bottle. Is the I think is the <laughs> the little portmanteau there, Mini Bada. Yeah, that's that's pretty great. By the way, I am super taken right now with the fact that you are crockpotting like a beef stroganoff with wine as one of the ingredients. That's Smells pretty baller. Super good. It yeah. actually I think you guys got us the cookbook, the five ingredient cookbook. Oh yeah. yeah. Cookbook. I think you got that for Ashley a couple that, years ago for That's Christmas. a decent that's a decent book. And we're heading into that beautiful of all seasons for crock pots like the fall. Where yeah. you can have something delicious like that. Can you smell it yet? Oh yeah, we could smell it. I could smell it this morning. <laughs> I'm like I'm I can smell the red wine actually. So yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty great. stoked. It's gonna be good. Best episode ever. Yeah. Well, what are you affirming? Let's let's move on to yeah, your affirmation keep, and then we'll actually we'll do a this. podcast episode. Yeah, I will keep this very brief. So I am affirming this week with my favorite Presbyterian minister of all times. Do you have any idea? I'm willing to let you guess. Do you have any idea who that is? I'm really curious if you if you would guess. I don't know. I don't I don't. I mean Samuel Rutherford. Okay, that's a really good guess. It actually Clarkson. He wasn't it's, that's also but. that's also a really good guess, and now I'm kind of second thinking my life. But well, David Clarkson wasn't a Presbyterian, so that's not no, a good guess. No, 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 right? But um, it, Rutherford is a really good guess because I I do love that dude. Um, it actually is related to your denial. Oh, this this may not be helpful at all. So it's not. I am affirming with my favorite Presbyterian minister of all time, who was Thomas Bayes. Oh, okay. D does that ring a bell at all? Theorem? Yes, exactly. There you right. go. I don't know what exactly. Bayes' theorem is, just that he had a, a mathematical theorem. So now it makes sense to me why he is your uh, favorite Presbyterian. Yes. It's not theological so, at all. So Thomas Bayes, <laughs> who lived in the 18th century, early 18th century, he was a, a statistician. He was a philosopher. He was a Presbyterian minister. And of course, he has a very famous theorem. That's his namesake. It's called Bayes' theorem. But the reason why I'm affirming this today is because I've come across some work recently and I've just realized that like everything from AI to automated driving to uh, diagnostic techniques, all of it actually is using this thing called Bayes theorem. So uh, without getting too much into it, I'm going to encourage people to go and look that up. Even if you just Wikipedia it, the amazing thing too, is that this probably among, I think you could pick a handful 
of really exceptional theorems of exceptional mathematical tools that have shaped our modern culture and our modern understanding of the world, this would absolutely be top 10. Like, no joke, without being hyperbolic. So it's an amazing theory. I love that it was developed by a Presbyterian minister, as if to emphasize, if we needed this, that in even the Reformed tradition, like the fact that we can come together in that he wasn't over-spiritualizing something, but God gave him a gift for mathematics, and he embraced that, and this is part of who he was and what he did. The other thing that's amazing to me is that he actually, Bayes, that is, he never published this theorem himself. It was actually published by somebody later who was named Richard Price. I presume that's because he was just too busy baptizing babies, but it's just amazing to me that he had this brilliant thought. He articulated it. He wrote it all down. He was using it. He was applying it. And yet it was something that, whether for humility purposes or not, he actually didn't publish himself. And yet it's become something that has so dramatically impacted all of modern technology that basically underneath everything that we do, all of the, a lot of the technology that we use is this theorem. And, and here's how I would describe it really briefly. If you and I were sitting, let's say we're having lunch somewhere, we're eating stroganoff. And uh, I said to you, look over your right shoulder behind you because Dr. Michael Horton is sitting right there. Now, if we, depending on where we're sitting, you would immediately, in your mind at least, think of probabilities. Like how likely is it that that's actually, that who Jesse is seeing is actually Michael Horton. Right. So you probably have an, an immediate probability where that's 10% or I'm 50% likely. Maybe it's because if we were eating in California, we'd be, it would be more likely. And then likely what you do is you turn around. And if before you saw him, you saw who was at the table, let's say that you saw that there were triplets there, then that's going to like <laughs> increase, right? The probability that I'm right. So like your mind is automatically adjusting your prior probability for new information. That is Bayes' theorem. It's basically a way to quantify how new information changes your prior probabilities and reshuffles and refocuses everything based on new information. Believe it or not, while that seems like intuitive in the way that we think, and it is, the ability to quantify that and to use it in calculations for purposes of things like diagnosing disease and sickness was never used before. So he initiated something that is absolutely profound. And he's, he almost, almost makes me want to be Presbyterian. So close on this one. Yeah. Yeah. A more uh, direct <laughs> application before we move on. Everybody is, either has or is going to do this in the next month or two, right? We're going okay. into allergy season. Yes. Which means everybody's going to get that post-nasal drip and is going to have a little bit of cough. So right. you're going to say to somebody, man, I've got a little bit of a scratchy throat. I wonder if it's COVID. Yes. And the next question that comes out of almost everybody's mind or out of their mouth is going to be, do you have a fever? And the, 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 as I understand it, this is getting at that, right? right? A cough by itself has a certain baseline probability of being COVID, a cough plus fever has a higher baseline probability of being COVID. So that's that's what this theorem is getting at. This is what I love. I tried to look this up on Wikipedia to see if I could understand it and make it sound like I'm really smart. This is one of those mathematical formulas where when you look at it, it has symbols in the formula that I don't actually know what they're called. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not true. even going to bother trying it. That Like that vertical line that's above the, the backward slash on a, a yes, keyboard. I have no idea you. what that's even called. So I'm just yes, going to stop now. So this, I'll, let me just say this way. I'll read it for everybody. So this way you can take this to your parties now. I guess oh, nobody's man. having parties because of COVID. But, and you can sound, as we'd say in New England, wicked smart. And that is, it's an inverse probability. So the probability of an event given new information is equal to the probability of the new information given the event divided by the unconditional probability of the new information times the prior probability of the event. I... If my life depended on being able to repeat what you just said, I would be dead. <laughs> but that's why it's actually super like easy. It's intuitive. I do, 
Yeah, ex- exactly. So, yeah. but I just love this. Like here's, here's a man of God who it was God used in a really profound way. And he never, what I think I like about him is just more as a person. Like he never disassociated, try to bifurcate this idea that he was a minister of the word of God. And at the same time, God had given him some special purpose in using mathematics to glorify God and to bring about really a new way for us to understand the world that God has created. It is profound. And I just love that he brought those two things together in kind of an unapologetic way. So my favorite Presbyterian minister of all time, even notwithstanding Simon Rutherford is Thomas Bayes. Well, let's not waste any more time and let's get into our topic. <laughs> we are now at 43 minutes of our hour-long podcast. So can we can we even talk about this thing in the time that we have left? That there's nothing else to talk about. Okay, listen, we got to do it. All right, so one... <laughs> Just one buckle of, up, folks. It's going to be an hour 15 at least. Yes. Hang in here, there. Here we go. So let me introduce what we're talking about on this particular episode. This is something that I thought it would be good for Tony and I to discuss because it's something that comes out of the Roman Catholic tradition. And so let me start by saying, in terms of a Reformed definition of the gospel, this good news, most of us would agree that this is a salvation that's received by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, standing on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Yeah. And the Catholic Church has, of course— a lot of traditions that deviate from that very essence of the gospel, as we've just described it there. And one of those is that the Catholic church promulgates a misunderstanding of what it means to confess our sins to one another. And many of us are familiar with this passage in James five, which let me read just very briefly, because this is really the setting for all of the conversation. This is James chapter five, beginning in verse 13, just the five verses following is anyone among you suffering let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so there's a Catholic penchant here, like built in around that verse, that therefore confess confess your sins to one another, to put themselves and other believers into the shoes of a priest, to hear confessions of sin, as if hoping to be forgiven by another believer, and not by God alone through the atoning sacrifice of Christ alone. So this is the error of what's called the auricular confession. It's confessing into the ear, auricular oral, like oral skills, which we actually touched on in the last episode, whether or not Adam and Eve have perfect pitch. But the ability to hear, confessing into the ear of another believer to receive forgiveness of sins, not committed against that person. And what I want to talk about is, what do we think about this? What is James talking about here? And what about this auricular confession that is a major part of the Catholic understanding of what James is talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we talked about 1 Corinthians um, 1.24, when we talked about it, we talked about how, like, sometimes we have a propensity to just sort of say, well, that verse can't possibly mean that. And this is one of those passages where it is true 
that that verse can't possibly mean what the Roman Catholics make it to mean. And the reason we can say that is because the Roman Catholic doctrine of confession, which is really the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance, right? Confession itself is a, a front door to the sacrament of penance. It's all interrelated there. And that flies absolutely 100% in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Th this theology is literally the thing that sparked the Reformation. This right. is what Luther was angry about, initially at least. This is the thing that he, what, this is what the 95 Theses was about. Because penance became the doctrine of indulgence, which then became abused by the church. And so if you go to the Roman Catholic catechism, which it, it, I don't know why it's called a catechism. It's set up very differently than traditional catechisms always have been. But the Roman Catholic catechism, which is really more set up like a confessional document, they talk about this and they talk about how penance obtains the forgiveness of te like it, it remits temporal punishment. So they have this whole edifice that they've constructed around the difference between eternal punishment for sin and temporal yes. punishment for sin that we don't, we don't have time, even in a normal episode, we wouldn't have time to get into, but on the face of it, this, this passage cannot mean what the Roman Catholics mean and have the rest of the, the, the uh, new Testament be true. Either they're in understanding this correctly and everything else in the new Testament is wrong, or if there's something wrong with the way they're understanding it. So I'll be honest with you. This is another one of those hard passages that at first, first blush, you're kind of like, I'm not really sure exactly what to do with it. And I think it's important for us to, to understand, like, that's okay. It's okay for us to come to a passage and not have an immediate answer. We need right. to study and, and work to understand it. But just on first blush, this is talking about the process of a, a Christian coming to the Lord with other people and seeking forgiveness and healing from the Lord. It's right. not talking about some sort of system wherein the person who hears the confession then assigns a certain level of penitence, an outward contrite act, which then somehow takes away the, the, the temporal punishment or the temporal consequences of sin. So they're looking at it saying, see, all of the elements are here. Someone confesses, the priest then, you know, pronounces the absolution and then the temporal punishment of illness is remitted. Roman Catholics don't generally uh, think that you're getting physically ill because of your sin and that if you confess and do penitence, that that's going to go away. That's not a typical Roman Catholic perspective. So right out of the gate, they're already sort of talking about something different. I think instead, it's better for us just to look at this passage and see someone who is being honest with the fact that it's possible that God is chastising them with physical illness. So right. they're seeking, they're seeking the community of believers. They're confessing sin, not not just to God, right? There are, there are good reasons for us to confess outwardly our sin to other people. I, I'm, I'll speak just for myself. I'm not sure what Jesse thinks, but I don't think there's anything wrong about me going to another brother and saying, look, I'm really struggling in this area. I sinned in right. this way, you know, but not for the sake of seeking some sort of forgiveness that is issued from God through that person to me. That's, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. And that's certainly not what this passage is teaching. Right. I agree with you. In this, I actually see, again, more subordination. Like Maybe that's yeah. the theme of this episode. This idea that somehow it is a lesser to just confess the sin to God, but what you really need to do is confess a sin that maybe is not necessarily directed at a person. To that person, somehow you're going to get a greater sense of absolution or that God will honor that in a special way. 
I think that what James is saying here is that, of course, in the fellowship of Christ and the saints, there must be full forgiveness of all offenses. That is, if I have wronged Tony and I've wronged you and I come to you and say, like, would you forgive me? There is under the, the auspice of God's loving kindness and salvation that you would grant that forgiveness by virtue of the example right. of Jesus Christ. If we are truly part of the real church. The children of God will readily readily acknowledge, that is like confess, that we're sinners and that by nature, our own proper merits, we are the children of wrath and damnation. In the gospel, I think we have two at least examples of amazing men who openly confess their sins to God. I mean, you can look at the prodigal son or you can look at the tax collector in Luke. We need to think that we are all sinners. That's important. We need right. to think that. We need to understand that. We must join, I think, though, with David in saying, like in the 32nd and the 51st Psalms, I have made my sin known to you, right. and my iniquity I have not hidden. I have said, I will confess my unrighteousness against myself, and you have forgiven me the iniquity of my offense. So we believe that God gives a perfect assessment of our condition. There's nothing wrong or misaligned or malaligned with his view, assessment, or his judgment. But we also need to understand that full forgiveness, like full stop, starts and ends with God. That the, the vertical reality there is not something that I think James is presupposing that. In other words, to get that kind of vertical forgiveness, there must be like a full pouring out or airing of dirt, all dirty laundry that's required to gain some kind of absolution or yeah. forgiveness. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, there is definitely value in, uh, in terms of our, pri our, our Christian practice to be transparent and honest with one another about our sins. Um, sometimes you, uh, I'm trying to be careful how I phrase this, but sometimes the act of saying it out loud, of, of speaking the fact that you have sinned in a particular area out loud, sort of enables you to then move past it, right? Sure. I, I remember, um, you know, guys particularly have sins that, that happen in private. Uh, not that women don't. But guys have sins that happen in private that are very difficult to talk about. And I, I remember in high school, one of our pastors uh, at a youth retreat, it was just guys, just hit us with it. Do you guys struggle with this sin? And and it was funny because like nobody raised their hand at first. And then the pastor said, I struggle with this sin too. And, and I have a tough time with this. And, and then immediately everyone else kind of was able to sort of raise their hand because they realized they weren't alone. So there, there's a utility on a, on a horizontal level, uh, that we find when we confess our sins one to another, where the, the Roman Catholic church gets it wrong. And I think, and this is where I think we need to be cautious because it's not just the Roman Catholic church, right? Sometimes I think as, as evangelicals, even as reformed evangelicals, we have this tendency to think that because there is that horizontal utility, there is that, that utility in terms of our everyday life and the practical, the practical work of mortifying sin, because of that utility, we then start to implicitly believe that there's also a vertical utility, right? Yes, so we right. start to think, well, if it's so useful for me to confess 
this particular sin. Maybe I'm just a really greedy person and I'm going to confess that to my business partner. So that way he can keep an eye out on me and make sure that I'm not fall, falling prey to the sin of greed. Well, that's fine. That's good. That's probably wise, actually, to say to your business partner, look, I have a tendency to be a little bit greedy. So what, when we're engaged in business, will you help me by watching my back and making sure that I'm not being dishonest so I can increase our gain, you know, un, in an unrighteous way? Right. That's fine. But when then we, we turn that corner and we start to think, well, now that I've confessed it to uh, my my business partner, there's some sort of extra spiritual power to overcome that yes, sin. Right. Th- that right there, that becomes the Roman Catholic view very quickly. You know, m- we don't necessarily start out by thinking, I'm going to confess this and my confession is then going to remit the temporal punishment of sin, right? As long as I do a certain penance. That's not... Uh, the first step that most of us make, we start to think, well, this is going to have a little bit more spiritual oomph if I, you know, if I confess it to my, my friend or to my pastor, whoever. And that right there is the first step to now giving it spiritual significance that the Bible does not give it. And the classic passage, I don't want to say that refutes this passage because it doesn't refute this passage, but refutes the Roman Catholic understanding is that the connection between confession and righteousness and forgiveness of sin is a confession to God, not to man, right? When John says, if you confess your sins, he is righteous and just to forgive us our sins. The implication is that you're confessing it to God because that's who is responding to that confession. It's not as though you're confessing it to, you know, John isn't saying, well, I confessed my sin to Peter and then God was just to forgive me of my sin. There, there's no other subject besides, you know, John as the, the speaker and God as the one who's responding to the sin um, in, in forgiveness, responding to the confession of forgiveness present in that passage. So wh- when we when we come across a tough passage like this, we have to, again, the, the, the analog of scripture is important. We have to look at the clear passages that are teaching clear things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we interpret the ones that are a little bit more difficult or confusing or a lot more difficult and confusing in light of the ones that are clear and relatively easy to understand. Right. That's well said. One of the things I think is interesting is that you're right. There is like an evangelical hangover here because I I have heard in some occasions, depending on the sin. And I think, you know what I mean in that some sins tend to be more lightning rod for this application than others, because there's a sense that they want to, I think the person counseling wants to provide some greater sense of accountability toward repentance. So I've, I've heard some instances where people literally said, well, that's great that you've confessed it to God, but who have you told in your life? And, And the implication there is that, well, you need to go to the extra step which may be wise, but sometimes maybe unwise, right. I think. And so like, we need to show some discernment there. This is one of those things where it goes back to this idea of how are we reforming the understanding of the application? Because it is the glory of God alone to forgive sins yeah. and from unrighteous men to make them righteous. So although I would say like the nuance here for me is though, all, although men are said to forgive sins, I think this is to be understood of their ministry. It's not their power. And the minister pronounces to the people that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Right. And in so saying, he does not deceive them because God does indeed forgive the sins of those who believe. And so this idea of the difference between like, what is the ministry and the work versus what is the actual power that we're differentiating that in such a way that we're 
pointing back to God alone doing this thing. Right. And so this idea of confession, like certainly there are times when we're going to need support from other Christians. We need encouragement and it's appropriate for us to do that, but it shouldn't be contingent. It's not the linchpin. And I do see it in some places used as a linchpin. And again, it seems like a certain set of sins without being like more particular than that, a certain set of sins are the ones which sometimes people feel the need to say, well, it's great, again, that you've had a private time of prayer or your, your prayer closet is deep with respect to confessing those things before God. But really what you need to do is tell somebody else about them, yeah. as if to say that there's not a completeness in this process until somebody else knows about that stuff. Yeah, and you know, this is this also takes some other forms that are particularly popular in in evangelical circles, especially in kind of like youth group culture, I, I remember real yes. distinctly the first the first uh, the first Sunday night of uh, college. I went to Bethel University, and they always had this. I don't know if they still do, but there was this worship service called Vespers, and it was it was really just like a a time of like musical worship. And I remember the first night of Vespers, we we had worship outside in the courtyard. So it was acoustic and there's a little bit of like the bonfire going on, and they would bring out this big wooden cross thing. And everybody would take turns going up and they would write their sins on a little mm. piece of paper and they would yes. nail that sin to the yep. cross. And, yep. and everybody knew this was coming. This is this is what's crazy about it. Everybody knew it was coming, but it still always seemed like the biggest surprise in the world. Because this, this cross was set up outside of kind of like the dining area. You had to walk past this pretty much from no matter which dorm you're coming from. And someone in the middle of the night would go out and would take all of those little all of those little pieces of paper off and just leave the cross up there with all the nails. And, and it, it felt really meaningful and spiritual when you walked out there in the morning <laughs> sure. and you saw that your sin was gone and you right. felt like you were starting the new year with some sort of spiritual power to overcome that sin. And you know what? By like force of will and maybe a little bit of like spiritual adrenaline, if you can call it that, you probably had a little bit more success uh, against whatever it was that you were fighting for the first couple of weeks. A and then it was gone. Right. Or maybe maybe you threw the little piece of paper in the bonfire at summer camp. I remember real clearly there was this um, when I was doing summer camps, we would have usually each night one or two of the camp counselors would sort of give like a little mini testimony and, and like a little kind of like a little speech or like a little lesson. And it was usually very touchy feely. And I remember this one girl, her name was Trina, and she she drove to camp. And one of the rules of the camp, and I think it's a fine rule, we weren't allowed to have any non-Christian music. And she realized that she had been in her car. She realized she still had a, a, like it was a Tim McGraw tape or something like that. It was like a cassette tape. And yeah, that she, should be burned. She, well, yeah, but that's a whole different thing. If you want to confess your sin of country music to other people, that's a good idea. But in this real like dramatic flourish, she pulled it out of her pocket and she said, this is what I think of this secular music. She threw it in the fire and everybody cheered. And you know what? I, I went and I, she gave me a ride somewhere like three weeks later. She had just went out and rebought the tape. So like when we think that these physical outward acts, whether it's confession to another person or some sort of symbolic act that we take, that's a form of penance. Nailing my right, little piece of is. paper that said I have a tendency to be arrogant to a, to a wooden cross that someone then snuck away and took down. That's an outward sign of penance that I thought right. I had spiritual power. I was just a tiny step away from thinking that I was forgiven because I nailed it to the cross. Right. And of course, like you couch it in all this all this biblical language about, you know, nailing we, our transgressions were nailed to the cross. The public testimony of our death was put on the, like all of this biblical language. But in reality, all of those outward physical creaturely acts 
cannot avail us anything in terms of spiritual power and spiritual forgiveness. And and we we start to make this error that the Roman Catholic Church has enshrined in their formal orthodoxy when we start to give those physical acts some sort of spiritual power or authority that that the Bible does not grant them. Right on. And that's really the reason that's that I think brings us really to actually in a very appropriate close because that's really the reason why I wanted to have the conversation is I think in all of our lives, we find these little strange hangovers and these little hangups. And this is a bit like all of our conversations, maybe on the violation of the second commandment and images of Christ, that these kind of things should prompt us to think about the nuances of our practice and why yeah. we do these things. Because especially in evangelicalism, let's say like Western evangelicalism, there's a tendency to use props or semantics to try to emphasize a particular spiritual point. And while that may be well-intentioned, it can be in the practice very damaging. And yeah. so I think it's one of those places where one of the wonderful things about being able to look at, I would say, the places in particular at the Roman Catholic Church where it deviates from the path of the scriptures is it should call us to assess in our own lives where even if we don't have the formal commitment, we still in some ways undertake the same kind of internal preparation or internal practice that's yeah. being performed in the official representation of this thing. And so I think that this is one of those places where we just need to understand, like, where does confession ultimately belong to? Whom have we sinned against? Yeah. And what I loved about the verse that you quoted, which is really one of my favorites in, in the entirety of Scripture, is for the longest time, I equated what John was saying there. It's like, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of righteousness. I equated for the longest time that forgiveness and righteousness were just, it was just, John was just trying to say, let me just reemphasize. Let me say the same thing. Let me use a synonym, but he's not using that. Of course, this is what's beautiful and what Christ does in the authority that he has to forgive all sin in making a way a propitiation, a true propitiation for all sin, for all time, for all humanity in all places and in all ways is when he says, I'm not just forgiving you. I'm not just stripping away the legal consequences, but I am reinstalling all righteousness like those are, those are two fundamentally, they're, they're tangential, but different things in the sense that whereas one is primarily emphasizing the forensic nature, the other is giving you the new identity, the favorable place in the yeah. family of God. And only that comes from God. Only God can do that thing. So yeah. while it may be helpful and supportive to confess your sins, certainly like if you wrong a person, you need to get in front of that person and confess that sin to them. Right. There's no doubt about that. And I think I would say that's primarily what James is emphasizing here, especially in the context of his book in the, the practice of the Christian life among the family of God. Uh, and even among those for, and unbelievers for the sake of forgiveness and asking um, to be forgiven for someone, something that you've done that's wrong. But in this case, I think this auricular confession obviously goes astray. It's far afield of what God wants from us. And that is true repentance, repentance, a confession leading to repentance that is primarily concerned with the holiness of God. And in so doing, what he promises is not only to forgive and forget that sin with respect to your eternal punishment, right. but then in addition to that, to restore righteous life to you, that righteous standing, right. which is separate because you can be given absolution, but not be given all the credit of having righteous living. Right. And the fact that John brings those both together, like if we, we could, we could have five more hours and I could just keep going on and on about that. How, like, honestly, how amazing that is to me. And the only person, the only being that can do that is God himself. Right. Yeah. And, and confession in a biblical sense is not about 
uh, verbalizing your sin, right? So uh, sometimes yes. I think before we wrap up, I want to make sure this is clear. It's not about the act of saying your sin out loud. Again, there is utility in that. There's practical benefit to do those things. But just looking at at 1 John here, right? Chapter 1, starting in verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, the word confess... You know, in the Greek, it's homologeo. It means to say the same thing, to speak together yes, is what the word right. means. And so in the context of this passage, what he's saying is, if you agree with God that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness, then he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins. Amen. This confession is not about outwardly verbalizing your sins. It's about, it's about confessing the fact that you are a sinner who needs a savior. It's about agreeing with God in the state of your soul and your need for Christ. That's what confession really is. When we now later on as Christians, when we verbalize our, in our prayers to God, or when we verbalize to our peers um, and our, our brothers and sisters, that we have committed a particular sin. That is not what John is talking about. Right. And, and what we need to understand, and this is where I think we need to get uh, particular is if John is not talking about that, then James probably is not talking about that either. Right. If John is talking about confession as agreeing with the faith once delivered to the saints that we are sinners in need of a savior, then it is reasonable to think that over here, uh, the Holy Spirit is saying something similar or the same in, in James. So James is not talking necessarily about this horizontal uh, confession. He's not talking about auricular confession. We know that he's not. Because that practice actually didn't come into prominence for hundreds of years. Right. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't right. common in the early church. This whole edifice of confession was not, not present in the earliest testimony of the church. Um, but if instead we see this and where he says, you know, if you confess your sins, then, then you will be made whole. He's talking, he's not talking about last rites. He's not talking about penance. He's right. simply talking about the fact that when we come together and we confess the faith, there's wholeness there and, and there's, there's restoration and there's salvation there. Whether that is the first, the, the, the beginning of salvation or whether that is the end, the end line, the finish line of salvation as someone approaches death, that confession is still the same. It's that I need Jesus. That that's the right. confession that both John and James are talking about is I need Jesus. I don't Amen. need the Pope in Rome. I don't need some priest to tell me what the gospel already says. I need Jesus because Jesus is all that there is. Jesus is all that's sufficient for my sin. Nothing right. can add to it. Right. Yeah, this is not a list of here's some bad things I've done, God. This right. is a, I'm not going to fight you anymore that I agree with your assessment of who I am. At the risk of quoting Hillsong United, oh man, I am who you say I am. That oh, that's man. really the confession here that we're talking about is that we're in complete agreement with God's judgment over our lives, and it starts not from this this vantage point of, well, I'm a I'm a child and I'm free, and it starts with no, I'm a I'm a sin sick person who's in desperate need of the healer, the grand physician, the one who can not only take away the condition but can restore my health. And so when we start there and say, I'm not, I'm not going to fight you anymore, God, that uh, I agree with your assessment and your judgment upon my life. That is where I think true confession starts. Not to mention, of course, 
can't you have confession without attrition? Like, can't, can't you have confession without repentance? Can't right. you have confession without a mission of guilt? Like, so it, to just make it superficially about, well, you need to say certain things right. and to say you did this bad thing or to acknowledge that this bad thing happened in your life. You can confess to avoid repentance, actually, if you really right. wanted to. And so that you're right. I like the way you finished that up, this idea of that. Really, we're, what we're doing is we're coming into alignment with our identity, both pre and post the cross. Yeah. And when we do that, there is actual consummate unity and harmony with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of the giving of the Holy Spirit. But it is predicated upon this kind of true confession and also, of course, its attendant repentance. Yeah, you know, when you said you were going to quote Hillsong, I was like, what <laughs> What does being called out on the waters have to do with this? I don't understand. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't bring that one into play here. I'm always look. I'm always looking for the opportunity. I have this amazing memory. Do you remember this time that we were at the beach together, and we were wading into the waters, and then you just started. You pulled that song up on your phone <laughs> and just walked around in the water. Yeah, that was it. Was good. It's good times. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I'm not gonna lie. That was that was a pretty sweet beach too. Yeah, that was a great yeah. beach. Um, we should I mean, start definitely... a podcast where all we do is reminisce about vacations that nobody else has joined <laughs> us on. <laughs> yeah, this means nothing to no. anybody else. But that was a great time. I it totally was. agree. Listen, I feel like we got after this topic in the short amount of time that we had. I Good on so. us, right? We did yeah. all right. Yeah, sure. Whatever. <laughs> sure. You know, listen, dismantling, you know, one kind of er erroneous Roman Catholic confession at a time. Yeah. Well, Jesse... Since Tony. we are now well past our time, we should wrap it up. So <laughs> until next it. time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.